Welcome to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. I'm Alex Petchy, Revenue Cycle Editor for Health Leaders. Today, I'm really excited to welcome back Becky Greenfield, a partner with Wolf & Cavage, a Miami-based law firm. She's here to talk to us about the upcoming surprise billing rule that will go into effect in January. Again, Becky, thanks so much for being here, and I'm really happy to have you back on the pod. Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. Before we dive into what's been happening over the last couple of months with surprise billing, can you just give us an overview of what it is and what it's trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. So at a high level, um, the No Surprises Act attempts to tackle two pretty broad categories, and these have been initiatives throughout throughout the uh, you know President Trump's term and and into um, the new um, the new leadership. Um, the first is that it tries to protect patients from financial hardship resulting from what's called balanced billing um, for emergency services and services that are performed at an in-network facility by a out-of-network provider. Um, and that's typically called surprise billing. And the second big category is healthcare cost transparency. And this is, you know, I'm not surprised there. Um, in 2020, we see, we saw a bunch of um, price transparency rules on both the health provider and the insurance side. And so this kind of just adds on to um, the general trend towards price transparency. Um, and so, you know, if to get into that a little bit more, um, I'm, I'm sure everyone knows this, but, you know, as a quick reminder, balanced billing occurs where a patient is billed by a provider in excess of um, what the insurance company pays um, up to what the provider's bill charges are. So the delta between bill charges and what the insurance company pays. Um, and this is especially, this, this occurs when a patient um, is covered by an insurance plan that is out of network with a provider. Um, so really where we see this the most detrimental to the, to the patient is in emergency circumstances where you go into the emergency room and you really just start either, you know, you go to the closest one or you're brought through an ambulance to an emergency department, or even, even in an elective circumstance, um, where you think you're going to an in-network provider because you're going to an in-network facility and your, you know, your surgeon may be in-network, but then there are all these other providers that may be out of network, and so you're you're fronted with um, balance billing uh, from from the out-of-network perspective. Um, and so, in various states throughout the country and varying degrees of protection, um, states have adopted surprise billing laws. And when I say surprise billing, I really mean both emergency circumstances and the in-network facility, out-of-network provider circumstance that protects patients from being balanced billed in those situations. In Florida, for example, we have we actually have pretty good um, protections. Hospitals and providers alike are, are pretty used to not balanced billing patients. But the caveat, and the big one, is that state law only covers individual insurance and fully insured commercial group insurance, also potentially Medicaid, but, but in this context, in the commercial space, it's individual and fully insured business. And so you have 
a large group of people that are covered by self-insured business meaning you know a a company like florida like blue cross blue shield or united is simply an administrator of benefit of, of the claims but the employer the typically very large employers um are the ones responsible for payment and so those people covered by self-insured business were not afforded the state protections and the federal government stepped in with the no surprises act to protect the people that fell within this gap um so under the no surprises act in a nutshell you can't surprise you can't balance bill for emergency services um the cost sharing so the pay, what the patient's going to pay out of pocket cannot be even if it's an added member added network provider cannot be more than what they would have had had they sought services from an in-network provider. Um, and the only time that a patient can be balanced billed is in the non-emergent context and only after sufficient notice and consent has been provided to the patient. And the rule sets out very, very specific um, requirements for that notice uh, and consent. Um, in fact, HHS has put out a sample notice and consent online um, that I would think providers may want to look at as they develop their own notice and consent forms. Um, and these, this notice and consent must occur at least 72 hours before an elective point, uh, an elective services is provided. The other piece of this, and I think we'll get into this, I'm sure, a little bit later, is um, the establishment of a independent dispute resolution process for providers who are not happy with um, what the out-of-network insurer, insurer pays them. Um, and so um, that's, that's gonna be a new and unique thing for self-insured business. Um, and there's also a dispute resolution process between patients and providers um, in instances where the patient believes that the estimate that they received for elective services was a lot lower than um, than what they got billed for, and and I can get into that a little bit later as well. So that's that first patient protection from exorbitant, you know, uh, healthcare costs. The other piece of this, the second piece, is healthcare trans uh, healthcare price transparency. Um, there are some, you know, for example, um, there, the providers have to place a public notice informing the public about um, what their rights are under various state and federal laws with respect to balanced billing. Um, a big one that's, that's really on everybody's radar is what's called the good faith estimate. This is for elective services in uh, where a provider has to give a good faith estimate of the quote-unquote expected charge for all services for a, a, a specific scheduled appointment. So this includes not only, let's say, the facility that is scheduling the appointment, but also the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, um, potentially the radiologist, anyone else that is part of that service package. and even if the those providers are not employed by the facility so i'm sure we'll also talk about that a little later that's that's a big one um, and then connected to that is what's called an advanced explanation of benefits um, 
everyone I'm sure is aware of what, you know, knows what an EOB is. Um, this is similar to an EOB, except that it lays out for the patient what their, what their estimated out of cost uh, will be for a particular service and what the insurer believes it will pay for the particular service. Um, and that would be given prior to the, um, to the date of service. Um, and then there are some other transparency that I won't, I, I probably won't get into very much, but, you know, um, improving insurers, um, maintenance of their provider network directory is one of them. Um, so those I think are kind of the big, the big ticket items that I've seen as I've reviewed both the statute and, and the regulation at a broad level. So you mentioned the arbitration process. Can you walk us through that and also specifically tell us what that second interim final rule that came out, I think it was last month or the month before, tell us about what that process looks like. Yeah. So the first thing I want to point out, I said it, um, I said it a few minutes ago, is part, part, part of what is difficult about this rule is that it forces the provider to ascertain what claims actually fall under this rule. So I'm going to use Florida as an example. That's where we're located. That's where our clients are, are typically located. Um, Florida has this robust surprise uh, balance billing protection. We also have a voluntary arbitration process that quite frankly, no one uses, but it is available under statute. And so if a claim comes in and it's fully insured, even if it's a group commercial plan or it's an individual plan, we're not even going to look at the no surprise. We shouldn't look to the no surprises arbitration process. But if, if the claim is a self-insured plan, then the arbitration process kind of goes something like this. Um, provider gets the claim, uh, I'm sorry, provider gets payment of the claim with an explanation of benefits or an explanation of payment or, an, or a remittance. And it should say, you know, contact this number at the plan if you're unhappy with the rate that we paid you, which I'm sure they will be unhappy with what was paid. And the parties have 30 days to negotiate what, what they believe is a fair um, payment for these out-of-network services. If after those 30 days, either party, probably just the provider, um, wants to pursue because they do not believe um, that they were paid correctly, they can initiate the process. It has to be within four business days of that 30-day negotiation process. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. Um, and then, you know, then basically, in a nutshell, the parties will select a certified IDR, independent dispute resolution entity, um, within three days of the initiation of the process. Um, if the parties can't agree, HHS will select one. Um, and the prevailing party pays the, the arbitrator's fees. Um, so that's kind of the process of the in a nutshell. Some, some things to keep in mind. Um, first, you can bundle claims together. 
um, but there are certain requirements. So if you're going to bundle claims in one arbitration, they have to be the same provider having the same NPI or tax ID number against the same payer, and it has to be for same or similar services as indicated by the CPT, HICPIC, DRG codes, et cetera. And those services have to be furnished within the, within the same 30-day period. So if your claims meet those four criteria, you can bundle them in the same arbitration process. If you decide to arbitrate for those services against the payer in this process, you are prohibited for 90 days following the arbitrator's award from submitting another arbitration for those services against the same payer. So you kind of have like a like a, a waiting period for the parties to cool down and then they can go through the same process again if they'd like. My hunch is that once they've gone through the process, and there's been an arbitrated, uh, there's been an IDR um, order uh, claiming what what is the correct payment. The parties will, uh, I, I would I would hope um, that they're able to um, convene and and figure out a price that works for them, so they don't go through this process over and over and over again. Um, but that is that is something to keep in mind. And the other thing that probably everyone is, um, I know everyone is really hung up on, at least from the provider side, is, and, and this goes to your question about what did we learn from um, the second interim final rule, is how the arbitrator is going to determine its award. So we already knew that the arbitrator had to choose either the provider's offer or the payer's offer. Um, it had to choose the the close, whatever it, whatever it determined was the correct amount, um, it would choose the payers or the providers offered the one that was closest to what the arbitrator thought was correct. In the statute, when we first came out, there were a list of things that would be submitted as evidence that the arbitrator could consider. And that included, you know, acuity of of the patient, um, the market share of each party in the market, um, the experience of the provider, and and other things. And I remember thinking when the statute came out, like thinking, wow, you know, providers, lobbyists, like finally they finally did it. They finally beat the insurance company. This is this was a big win for providers because the insurers were really pushing for either a benchmark payment or or some kind of median network payment. And then these second interim rules, uh, final, interim final rules came out, and it appeared that the agency totally pivoted. And so what we know now is that the arbitrator is directed to assume, so there needs to be, there is a presumption that the QPA, and I should step back, the QPA is, unless you live in a state that has um, that sets rates for the payers and providers. The QPA is the median in-network rate for a particular service. So, um, going back, the arbitrator needs to presume 
that the QPA, that the median in-network rate for that payer for the services that issue is the appropriate out-of-network rate. And the provider can, can submit evidence. So for example, acuity of the patient, experience of the provider, and market share of the parties as quote-unquote credible evidence as to why that QPA should not apply. So this is a complete, in my opinion, um, 180 from where we were prior to the issuance of these, of these final rules. I don't know if you want me to, you know, get, get into this anymore, but um, the, the, this is, this is something where I could see um, providers uh, contesting this in court as, as an administrative over, uh, as the agency having um, overstepped its boundaries. Yeah, um, I would love to hear more about that because I know they're very, very upset. Yeah, and I, I think rightfully so. Um, it, it puts the power in the hands of the insurers because if it's true that the that the QPA for out of network is going to be reliant on in network median rates, it allows insurers to analyze its contracts in that market and cut ties with those providers that are the most expensive. Um, and it's happening. It's already happened. Um, we represent a, a physician, a large physician group, and they're seeing this play out um, throughout the United States um, with their various practices throughout the United States. So and it, um, hmm? so it's not hypothetical at this point. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's hypothetical. I think it's something that um, that we're experiencing already, and the plans have. You know, I don't know if they have a crystal ball or what, but they've been preparing for this rule, I think, for a long time. Um, and and so, you know, we'll we'll see we'll see how that plays out. I mean, the the one of the problems with the QPA is when, you know, when we negotiate contracts, when our clients negotiate contracts, they take into account the volume of patients that are going to be seen. So no two contracts are alike, you know. So if you think that you're going to get high volume out of a contract, you may negotiate a lower rate versus someone that may not get much out of it and is not willing to accept such a high rate. And, and that's going to skew it's going to skew the QPA. And so where you're dealing with at a network where volume is not an issue because there is no contract, um, those rates that, that take into consideration that financial value of volume is, is, is going to be placed on, on services that, that should not, that shouldn't be impacted by that analysis. Um, so, so yeah, that is the providers, hospitals and physicians alike are, are pretty upset about, about that one. 
Um, the, the other thing that I would say, that, and this isn't something that my clients have brought up, but something that I've been thinking about, and I'm going to be really frank here because I have not done the research on this yet, although I'm, I'm hoping to do it pretty soon, is um, the fact that the arbitration itself is mandatory. So for self-insured plans, you can't elect to just go to court and, and sue like we typically do every day. You have to go through this arbitration process, which is, and, and unlike other mandatory arbitration processes, this is not judicially reviewable. So if you're not happy with the outcome, except in very, very limited circumstances, like I think fraud and, and some other pretty egregious things, you have no opportunity to appeal. You have no opportunity to be, um, for it to be reviewed by court. And so to me, that seems like some kind of due, due process um, infringement, especially in, in, in the emergency services context where hospitals don't, hospitals and, and hospital-based providers in emergency rooms don't have, they don't have a right to turn down patients in this country. EMTALA requires them to see patients. So not only are they required to see these patients, they're now required to, um, they're, they're gonna get lower rates through a QPA analysis that really doesn't, in my mind, make any sense. And then if, if there are reasons why they should get a higher rate, they can't, they can't pursue that in court through an appeal or otherwise. So, um, and I think there's, there's some significant issues and I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some lawsuits regarding this, um, this process. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us for more with Becky when we come back. Hi, this is Melanie Blackman, Strategy Editor at Health Leaders. I'm here to tell you to check out the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast, which drops every first Wednesday of the month. On my show, I sit down with women executives who share insights on important healthcare topics, their leadership experience, and how others can climb up the organizational ladder. Subscribe and listen to the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Welcome back. We're talking with Becky Greenfield of Wolf Pinkavage. Becky, what else is in that second interim final rule that revenue cycle leaders should be paying attention to? Yeah, so um, I think we talked a little bit about um, that good faith, the good faith estimate and the advanced EOB. Um, we did learn some good news. Um, the agency has said that they are going to um, delay implementation of the requirement of a good faith estimate for commercially, for, for insurance, for patients with insurance. Um, so that will be delayed until the agency comes up with the regulations at some later date, which um, I don't think we really know when that will be. And they did that because the agency realized after reviewing thousands of comments um, from stakeholders that we don't have the um, 
the technology and infrastructure in place to number one, communicate with each other. So a facility and a, and a non-affiliated hospital-based provider that may be involved in the treatment of a patient, they, they don't share necessarily a, an EHR. They don't, necess, they don't share pricing. And so there's, there's, right now, there's really nothing in place that would allow the providers um, to communicate with each other, to be able to quickly get a good faith estimate to the insurance company um, so that the insurance company could get the advanced um, EOB to the patient. And so fortunately, the agency did recognize that that is a significant undertaking um, and they've delayed uh, they've delayed that for now. The, the good faith estimate is, however, required for self-pay patients. And um, the, the, these interim rules that came out end of September, I think it was end of September, um, lay out really specifically how they want that handled. Um, you know, so for example, the regulations um, define expected charges. So the the provider, so they're, they we have the provider where the patient requested the appointment, and that's called the convening provider in the regulations. And then we have the other providers that are involved in the care. And those are the co-providers or co-facilities. So um, when a patient calls for an appointment, the convening provider asks them, are you covered by insurance or is this self-pay? If the patient says self-pay, then the convening provider will contact the other co-providers to, co to collect this good faith estimate um, of expected charges for the patient. And those expected charges is an estimate of what the patient will pay either presumably bill charge or if the if the provider has a self-pay rate then it would be that self-pay rate um, and for self-pay patients that estimate would be provided upon request or um, when they request within a certain time period um, when they request from when they request an appointment um, I will say that just because we say so just because we say self-pay it doesn't mean necessarily that the patient doesn't have insurance um, self-pay could also mean a patient who has insurance but is electing not to submit a claim through their insurer um, and we see this typically occur where the patient has a high deductible plan and it would potentially be cheaper for them to um, to go through the self-pay route and get the discount rather than go through their insurance um, and and work towards their high deductible so that was a that was a big another big thing that we learned um, from the part two regulations and then another process that was um, laid out in these regulations was a patient provider resolution so 
this is available to a patient where they've received a good faith estimate. So this would be for non-emergent services um, and where their bill at the end of the day was at least $400 more than the estimate that they were given prior to the services. And this process must be initiated by the patient 120 calendar days of the date in which the patient receives the bill. So there, there are a lot of details in those regs that I'm not gonna get into, but um, th those were some of the big topics in addition to the IDR process for the provi provider payer disputes that came out of the per two regulations or second regulations. So things are still interim at the moment, but how should revenue cycle leaders be preparing for this rule when we're less than three months away from the implement implementation date at this point? Yeah, so um, what I've seen my clients um, been doing is they've been working with their internal IT um, and external vendors, including their, their EHR vendors, to create workflows that will help them prepare for this. So, you know, how, so some of the things that, that I've, that they've been looking at, for example, are how do we, how, what workflows do we have in place to identify what type of claim this is? If this, how, how do we, is it, is it self-insured business or is it fully insured business? Um, and, what in our systems will will trigger this and then and allow the claims to go through the process as as applicable um, what workflows do we have in place to ensure patients receiving non-emergent services will receive the required notice and consent form um, if we want to balance bill them um, although the good faith estimate is kind of on hold for now um, for insurance companies, and, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but even for the self-insured, um, the agency will be exer exercising um, enforcement discretion until January of 2023. So at least until January 2023, with respect to getting price estimates from other providers, um, this is a good time to start going through those workflows and figuring out um, how will we collect that information from, from other providers? Um, how will the good faith estimate be communicated to patients? And who, how do, how are our, who is doing that um, within the organization? We may experience some more savvy consumers who are asking for self-pay rates, even if they are not, even if they are covered by insurance. Um, and they may, they may in fact price shop between different providers. Um, so we need to be prepared for that. Similarly, we need to be prepared for consumers, especially for self-pay where we actually do have to give the, the good faith estimate, at least for our own good faith estimate um, before the, the elective service. How are we gonna handle it, handle the situation where a patient is now aware of how much it's going to cost and they decide last minute to cancel the services um, and and how are those cancellations going going to be handled within the organization so um, 
The, the other thing I would say, oh, and, and then of course, a workflow to ensure that patients aren't going to be bounced built um, in the emergency context and in the, the in-network, in-network facility, out-of-network provider context. And then the, the other thing I would say is um, analyze your payer mix. So for hospitals, um, this may not be as big of an issue, this potential IDR process and, and all of these things that come with out of network, because hospitals are typically uh, more inclined to be in network. That being said, there are there's a rising um, trend in these reference-based pricing companies with no networks. And so um, I could see those companies being the biggest, potentially the biggest disruptors for a hospital and where they, they, the hospitals may need to focus their attention when they think about how the No Surprises Act is going to, going to apply to their patients. Um, the, other, the other potential issue is, you know, if you're in a market like Florida where we have a lot of snowbirds um, that come from out of state, we may see, we, we need to be aware of those out-of-state claims that are potentially um, self-insured business and, and that would fall under the No Surprises Act. Um, again, probably less, less uh, applicable to hospitals but, and more applicable to physician groups is those physicians who are historically been out-of-network out of heavy um, you know, the question is, does that still make sense? And you need to, what are the cost differences between going out of network and staying in network, taking into account all of these administrative resources that are going to need to go into um, providing, you know, going through this, potentially this IDR process and, and, um, and, and that uncertainty that, that comes with it. Um, I have one client who's a physician group, and I, I was speaking with um, them a little while ago, and um, they said that they, you know, they're, they're really looking, they're looking at the termination provisions. They're looking at very specific provisions of their contracts across the board to make sure that they have long-term, they have long terms. So instead of an annual Term, they may be pushing payers now to enter into three to five year term contracts, again, to, to create some, some stability. Um, and they, they said that they were willing to take a pay cut um, to get these longer terms because they felt that the uncertainty of this IDR process, especially um, <clears throat> now that the QPA is, is kind of what we're probably looking at as in terms of payment that it it made sense to give up some money on the front end for um, some contract stability um, so those, those are kind of the things that I would take a look at as we prepare for January 1st and you mentioned that some provisions um, were delayed in terms of enforcement but what will change immediately for revenue cycles on January 1st Yeah, so, um, and I think, I mean, I think I kind of 
got into this a little bit, I mean, we certainly are going to need to have some of these workflows in place immediately, especially um, for for price transparency um, and, and more of those transparency type issues. And so um, those, I think we need to prepare immediately and, you know, the public notices and, and whatnot. Um, we, we also are going to have to, to be prepared for workflows for this IDR process. I mean, that is, that is going to happen um, immediately starting January. Um, and so we need to be able to identify what claims will apply to this process. We need to identify the people that are in charge of this process. Are we going to be doing this internally? Are we going to hire a vendor to monitor this and, and pursue the arbitrations? But those are things that I think hospitals um, should really think about uh, right now. Um, I, I think I think we kind of touched on this too, that the, the payers, I don't I think that a lot of a lot of the the fear of what's going to happen with reimbursement um, is warranted but I also think that we've already been experiencing this um, I think payers have been getting very aggressive with their out-of-network pricing um, Payers used to use rental networks, um, which paid very, very well. I mean, anywhere from 60 to 90% of bill charge for these rental wraparound networks. And they're now, you know, plans are electing, quote unquote, to opt out of that repricing through the, these rental networks and instead going repricing claims through other repricers um, who are paying through reference-based pricing or, or kind of benchmark pricing, which is typically, you know, 120 to 140% of Medicare. So I think the payers have, I, I think I said, I, I mean, I think that they saw that they've seen this coming. And um, so I think to some extent, we've already, we've already been experiencing some of the effects of this law, um, as the payers have been gearing up uh, for for this, you know, for this environment at, in the federal air, uh, federal space. Um, does that answer your question? It does. Thanks. Um, okay. And I can kind of anticipate your answer, but you know, at this time last year, there was so much worry and talk about the price transparency rule, but it ended up being something that hospitals really aren't complying with one way or another. Mm -hmm. Is the same thing going to happen with surprise billing? Um, so perhaps, perhaps in part. So again, you know, especially in the next year, since there is, um, the agency has um, said that they were going to exercise um, enforcement discretion for the good faith estimate. I don't think we're going to see compliance with that piece, at least not material compliance. I, I don't think that that's my hunch. Um, with respect to balanced billing patients, 
you know, at least in Florida, hospitals and providers are pretty used to not balance billing patients because we have this law in place already. And so I don't think um, that is, I, I don't, I don't anticipate that providers will continue to balance bill. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think providers want to balance bill patients. I think, I think they would love to get paid what they're entitled to without ever having to, to talk to the patient again about, um, about um, their bill. So yeah, I, I think with that, that respect, we'll see compliance. Um, and then with like the notice and, and transpar other transparency things, I think we'll see compliance. I, I can't imagine everyone's gonna get it right. Um, at the beginning, but I think there is movement in order to comply um, to the to the best to their best ability. Um, and you know, I think one one thing to mention here um, as we kind of wrap up is this is this is one of those things that I think pretty overwhelming. Um, just like the transparency laws, I mean, it's pretty overwhelming. Um, but I'm not totally sure how impactful it will be in the long run. And I, what I mean by that is not that providers are going to see a downward shift in reimbursement, because I'm not, I don't mean that at all. What I mean is that at least with respect to this IDR process, I think we're going to get to a point after provider and payer do this a few times, then they go through the process and get, you know, get a an award from the arbitrator, you know, one way or the other. And my hope is that neither party is happy because that's I mean that's what we say. Like if you go if you come out of a media a mediation or arbitration and neither party's happy, then you've probably won. Um, we're going to, I think, get to a point where we're going to hit the sweet spot and both parties will kind of know what they should offer. And it's going to hopefully, I'm hopeful that it will result in, if not in network contracts, it will result in some kind of LOA or out of network deal so that the arbitration process really isn't used very often and it doesn't take up um, as much resources as I think people um, <clears throat> are pretty worried about right now. Becky, it's been great talking with you as always. Thank you for being here again and sharing your expertise with us. I know that this is a hugely important issue for our listeners, so really appreciative of your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you listeners for joining us on the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of patients and each other.